As you guys may see, my name is Benjamin Serrano. I have a beautiful wife by the name of Ivana. She's with my child in the lobby. Um, I want to thank her for just being my anchor, my support. I also want to give a quick shout out to my in-laws who are here from New York. They're sitting in the back. They're kind of shy, so you might see them sitting down. <laughs> they came all the way here for me. No, I'm just kidding. They came to enjoy Florida like everybody else does. But um, it's great to have them here, uh, honestly. With them and my mother and father who's sitting there as well too, these are people that shaped me to be who I am today. So I'm always thankful for them and I give God thanks for every single thing they've done. Uh, but to not take too long, this I had the privilege of growing up in church all my life. Uh, I was born on a Thursday and I always joke that, you guys can be seated too. I was born on a Thursday and I always joke that um, God gave God let me be born on a Thursday so my parents can make it to church on Sunday. Because if you know a little bit about my family, um, I grew up with a grandfather who was not only my grandfather, but he was my pastor for 40 years in a church in Brooklyn called Brooklyn Christian Temple. He's the late Reverend Eugenio Vega. He's now with the Lord, and I thank God for that every single day. Um, but he wasn't just a pastor. He was a friend, a mentor. He was also my grandfather. He was, he was everything to me. But he taught me two things when it comes to preaching. And the first thing he taught me was, don't always speak from what you know, but speak from what's been made known to you. Um, and the second thing he told me is, blessed is the preacher who preaches fast, because he gets invited a second time to preach. <laughs> so, so I'm going to try to keep this short summer sermon series, keep going forward, at least for another week. Now I'm going to try to bring this pretty fast and bring it to a point. Um, but... From where you guys are seated, it's fine. I just want to go ahead and jump right into the word of God. And I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 to 23. And then we're going to also jump to chapter 34 from verses 4 through 9. While you guys look for that, once again, it's the book of Exodus chapter 33. If you guys have a Bible with you, kudos to you. I have technology, which has a Bible in it. <laughs> but if you still carry the old school one, it's the second book in the Bible. Um, book of Exodus, chapter 33, verses 18 to 23. And just to give you a brief synopsis about Exodus itself, if you guys don't know what the book of Exodus is, it's basically a book that carries around the life of one man, and his name is Moses. But it's not just about his life. It's about a whole generation of people. It's about the children of Israel being in captive in slavery, and how this one man, Moses, liberated them with the help of God to bring them to the promised land. We're kind of in the tail end of it, so they're already been freed from Egypt. They're already in the wilderness. They have already met with God at Mount Sinai, um, had, had a little issue there the first time where they didn't obey his commands in the beginning. And so now this is the second time where God's approaching Moses, I mean, where Moses is approaching God in the tent of meeting, and he's getting the second commandment, getting the Ten Commandments for the second time. So I want to start there. And if you guys have it, if you don't, it's available on the screens. So the word is read in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church says, Amen. that's another thing I learned in, in church growing up. So uh, as it says in verse 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Verse 21, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Real quick, let's jump to verse Chapter 34, verses 4 through 9. It says, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, proclaiming his name, the Lord. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Verse 8, Moses bowed to the ground after this happened at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, and I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Let's do a quick prayer. God, I'm here before you as your vessel. Nothing, nothing I could do could add on or take away from what you have planned to do today, God. So I ask you to have your way in this place. Guide my words as you did in preparation, God, and let your words be spoken today. I give you all glory and all honor. In your name we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. So when it came about coming about this message, this message actually arrived to me. Not, any, not last week, not two weeks ago, but this, this actually arrived to me on December 31st of 2020. Um, as you guys may remember 2020, it was a crazy year but for all of us. But at the time when I received this word from God, I was in New York. I was visiting my family, my in-laws, and we were ready, ready to celebrate the holidays. And it was New Year's Eve. And I, New Year's Eve, like anybody else, you always have resolutions, right? People tend to start wondering what they're going to do or what they've done great the year before and what, and what they plan to do the next year. It's just that this year was a little different because if you guys remember the year 2020, it, was, it wasn't a lot that we got done. <laughs> I mean, everything started shutting down. There was a pandemic that was happening around the world. Um, I transferred from being working in office to working at home, and that was a change in itself. Um, but everything kind of felt stagnant for the year. <clears throat> and what I mean by that was that just trying to get our feet planted into what the new new was going to be for all of us. I kind of pushed away all goals I had for that year. I didn't focus on any vacations that we had planned or anything like that. Everything just went on a standstill. So it was kind of hard for me on December 31st to realize, what do I want for God to do in me the next year? Or what's the plans for me for the year to come? I kind of lost this whole year already. Do I just do the same thing that I was going to do? in 2020 and 2021. But I felt like that would be, that would be a disservice. Um, I felt like that that wouldn't be right. So I went to God and I asked him, God, what do you want from me for 2021? And it wasn't an immediate answer right there. Uh, after I prayed that to God, I went about my day. I continued to do what I had to do for work. I was working at that time on vacation. And then later on that evening, before we went outside, I felt like God put it in my heart, and he told me, can you just give me the glory next year and forevermore? And I was taken back by it because, as I said, I grew up in church, and when you grow up in church, there's certain things that you just learn just because you hear it so much. It doesn't matter if it's necessary, if you feel it's true or not, you just take it as truth because you hear it so much. Like, for instance, if I say, God is good, and all the time, you know that, right? I mean, if you, go, if you go up anywhere in church, you, you know that phrase. And it's not that it's false. It is true. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. But I didn't need to study that. I didn't need someone to tell me that, for instance. I heard it my whole life. So I've just ingrained it inside me to know that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Well, there's another phrase that I've heard my whole life as well, too. And that phrase is actually my title for the message. And it's, to God be the glory. Or... As you grow up in Spanish church, adios sea la gloria. That's the only Spanish I got, guys, so don't, don't come at me for more Spanish. That's all I know. No, I'm just kidding. But, that's the, but to God be the glory is what I learned um, growing up. So when I heard God ask me, can you give me the glory this year and forevermore, I was kind of taken back by it. Not because he doesn't deserve the glory, but it's kind of like if you're buying a gift for somebody who has it all. Like, have you ever been in a situation where it's either a graduation, a promotion, whatever it may be, their kid's birthday, and you know that where you're going, these people tend to look like they have it all. They have a nice car, nice house, they have nice clothes, whatever, whatever it is that to you seems like it's all, these people have it. 
And it's always the hardest gift to buy because what do you buy for the person who has it all? It's, it's not easy. You end up buying a gift card or you end up not knowing how much to put on it. What do I put? What do I not put? What shirt do I get? Do I even get anything? Do I bring food? Or whatever it may be. Um, and that's kind of how I felt when God asked me, can you give me the glory this year and forevermore? Like, how do I give God something that he already owns? It's not... As I said, I grew up knowing to God be the glory, so I automatically put the reference that God has all glory. Everything is his. So why would God be asking me to give him something that he already owns the 100% share of? At least to my knowledge. And it's not just me. David says it too, right? In Psalms 19.1, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of his hand. Not only David says it, but in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is being called as a prophet, his first encounter with God, he describes it and he says that he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne with the train of his robes filled the temple. Above him were seraphims with six wings, two wings covering their face, two wings covering their feet, and two wings to fly. And they were crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his Glory. So you see, the seraphims know that God deserves all glory. David know God deserves all glory. I knew it as well, too. So I didn't understand what God was asking me at the moment. In all honesty, God's full glory is truly beyond our comprehension. But if we try to understand what glory is, we usually define it in two different phrases. One being to signify magnificence or splendor towards something. And the other one is to be bestowing high honor and praise towards someone. See, I quickly realized that what God was asking me was, was not far-fetched. And it wasn't that he was asking me to give him something that he didn't have. But the problem to my question of me not understanding it wasn't in the knowledge of his glory. See, I know that God deserves all glory. But God's problem with me was my application of that knowledge. Was I really giving him the glory that was already belonging to him? Was I really putting the focus back to him as he was pouring his glory out on us? I'll give you a quick way to try to understand this. Imagine if tomorrow you guys were all to wake up and none of you guys were to remember at all that I'm a father of two kids. Not only did you guys forget that or it was wiped away from your memory, but let's say you went to the record books, looked at birth certificates, looked at any sort of invoices, tax returns. There was no record of me being the father of my two kids. Now, the one thing will be true. It wouldn't matter if you guys didn't remember. I would know that I'm the father of my kids. His, their actual genetic DNA would never change and show my paternity to them. I could do a DNA test and, and be able to find out easily that those kids are mine. But one thing that could change, or one thing that could jeopardize everything, is the legitimacy of my fatherhood to everyone else. You see, I may know that, I'll be a, that I'm a father to my two kids, but there might always be a doubt in everyone else's mind if I truly am their father, without no records, without no proof, without anything that you guys need to be able to see that, yes, his claims of being their father are true. If that is true, church, then could it be that the mere knowledge of God's glory is not enough? Or in other words, can your character, your actions, or your inactions render God's glory illegitimate in everybody's eyes? You see, if you wake up every day just forgetting that God deserves the glory, or forgetting that he is your father and that he loves you and that he cares for you, could your actions then make that statement illegitimate to everyone else around you? It wouldn't matter if we know to God be the glory if you don't live a life that shows God is the glory. And that's when I realized when God was asking me that there was holes in my life where I would go by my day knowing something about God, but not truly applying that knowledge of God in everything I do. It's not enough for me to know that God is faithful if I still don't believe that he's going to show up. It's not enough for me to know that God's a provider if I still feel like I'm losing or I'm not gaining things that I need in my life. It's not enough for me to know that God loves me if I wake up every day hating myself. You see, the knowledge of it is really pointless or it's, 
useless if it's not applied properly. So I've realized that could it be that us as Christians or believers, we walk around this earth a lot claiming that God deserves all glory, but we really don't apply that or show that to the world. Then could that be the reason why the world looks at a God that, that they can't see and feels like he doesn't exist? Because we walk around illegitimately representing that glory that does exist? If that's the case, church, then I do want to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 9. And it'll be up there. And we kind of go into a little more detail about what it is to know something, but then not show what you know. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 9, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Verse 5, for this very reason, meaning that for the reason that we are now, live, we are now to live godly lives in the divine nature, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increased measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. I'm going to say that again. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge, it says. Not in your application, in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. What is it trying to say here? Is that it's not enough to just solely understand that you have been made new once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The knowledge itself is not enough. That's just knowing the talk. But if you're not walking the walk, in your faith, if you're not applying that knowledge to obtain these other qualities, what were they again? Knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. If you're not obtaining these qualities in your knowledge, then what are you doing? You're just as nearsighted as blind, and you're walking around this earth forgetting that you have been cleansed from your past sins. Now, you may not forget that you've been cleansed from your past sins, but what he's trying to say is that if you don't possess these qualities through the knowledge that you received of being born again, then what you're doing is that you're making, it, you're making your salvation ineffective to this world around you. This world will look at you and they will see someone who seems to be continuing in their sins. Why? Because you have left God's sacrifice on the cross and never took it with you to go on. You see, it, it, it's, it's a shame when we think about Jesus Christ dying on the cross because sometimes we, sometimes we kind of hinder it. We think of it as a history lesson or something that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's it. But no, the Bible does tell us that every single time we sin, Jesus Christ is nailed back onto that cross. And he's constantly being represented in front of God for our transgressions. In other words, you waking up and knowing that you're saved and that you've been cleansed from your sins, but continuing to live a life in sin, doesn't do anything else but nail Jesus back onto that cross every single day. And every single day, if you nail Jesus back onto that cross, then you should understand what it means to be nailed on a cross. Imagine if someone came to you every single day and just nailed the biggest stake into your arm every single time or into your feet. Would you really be okay to go on the next day? Probably not. Would you be okay to just forget it and just keep on moving forward? No. Would you forgive it and then keep and move on? Not really. But Jesus Christ does this every single day for you. Every single moment of every single day, he is there presenting his scars to our Heavenly Father, to redeem you. And you choose to live a life the way you want to live it. You choose to talk a big talk and walk a little walk. And that's not fair for God. Because what it does, it just makes you look like to the rest of the world that the glory that deserves to our Father is illegitimate. So today I hope, I hope to talk about three particular ways that the glory of God is experienced in relationship with him. And to do that, I'm going to use the verses that we spoke about previously in Exodus. So 
Afterward that, then we should have a good foundation to lay out and determine if to God be the glory actually holds true in the application of your own life. Amen, church? So let's go right into it. The first way we experience God's glory is by experiencing his glory before you. If you read Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 through 19 again, it clearly says that Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. In other translations, it says before you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. As I stated earlier with David and with the seraphims, it's been known throughout the Bible that God deserves all glory. God has been a big proponent on showing his glory or showcasing his glory on full display ever since creation. I mean, when he created the heavens and the earth in Genesis, it says that he, that he called it all good. Now, after he made the heavens and the earth and he made all creation and he made all vegetation and all fruits and all animals and separated the skies from the waters and made it morning and night, that he called it all good. And then he went ahead and he created something extra special, which was man. But when he created man, he actually said, it's not good for man to be alone and they need a partner. So what he did was he put Adam into a deep sleep, pulled a rib out of his side, and created Eve. After he created Eve, then he realized that all was good. And he asked Adam and Eve to rule the earth, to name the animals, to have dominion over everything that occurs, and to be able to operate this place, which is, which is here. Truth be told, we all know the story. We all know that because a woman had to show up that we're here today in sin. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, that's not the story. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just kidding. No, but we all know that, we all know that the, Satan came disguised as a serpent. And what he did was that he was very deceitful and crafty in his ways. He went to Eve and he told Eve, hey, why don't you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Now, this tree of knowledge of good and evil was parked right in the middle of the garden. And it was near another tree called the tree of life. And God asked Adam and Eve to not eat from the tree of knowledge and evil because once they eat from it, they will surely die. Eve knew this knowledge. She understood that God told her that. But the serpent, as deceitful as he was, he said, no, you're not going to die. That's not what's going to happen. It's just that once you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will know like God. And your knowledge will be opened like God's is. Now, I find that a little funny because if you, if you know a little bit more of the creation story, you know that when God created Adam, he spoke as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. So Adam and Eve were already made like God. The serpent didn't tell them anything or didn't entice them with anything else that they already had on them. They were like God. And the serpent said, if you eat from this fruit, you will be like God. If they actually knew the truth of how they were already created, then maybe they would have never ate from the fruit. They would have known that, no, God already created me in his image and likeness. I don't need to be any closer than that. But no. Why? Because they didn't care about being like God in their image. They wanted to be like him in their intellect as well, too. You see, it wasn't enough to be like God. They needed to be God. And that's the problem because what we said earlier was that God receives all glory. All glory is onto him. God didn't give them the intellect to know knowledge of good and evil, not because he just felt like not giving it to them. No, it's just that God knows that he knows all things, that he is almighty, he is all powerful. To give them something so they could be at the same level as him would be void and useless because no one's at the same level of God. God is good and every man should be a liar, the Bible says. The only God is great. Understand that, that when, when they used to tell Jesus, oh, if I, can I go to heaven and I'm a good man? Jesus said, no, no man is good but God. There's a, different, there's a difference to it. It's not saying anything bad about you. It's just you're not at his level. It's that simple. You know, it's crazy when we think about God's making us in his image because in Matthew 22, the Pharisees were trying to trick Jick Jesus, right? As they always did. And they tried to trick him with, with the, 
with Axiom about Caesar's imperial tax. Now, to give you a little details about what was going on this time in the Roman Empire, well, this is the first recordings of a tax actually being issued to the people. Caesar created this idea of taxing certain people, not the whole Roman Empire, but subjected people to be able to pay more towards the government. What the problem, what's the problem with this is that it was dipping into the funds that the Pharisees were receiving from the church because it was targeting most of the people who actually weren't Roman. Those who were sitting there, who were actually attending into, who were living in Jerusalem and living in these cities ruled by Roman empires were getting taxed. And like anybody else, once your bills start raising up, it's kind of hard to be generous. So what they started realizing was that with Jesus preaching the gospel and moving across the whole world at that time, people were not attending the, tabernacle, the temples, were not attending those masses and those services more often. So they were losing offerings inside their plate from people actually attending because they were following Jesus everywhere. Not only that, this tax was dipping into how much generosity people had towards the church because now they knew that they were getting ripped off by the government itself. So the Pharisees thought, let's trick Jesus this way. If we tell them, hey, if we ask him this question, should we give into Caesar's tax, then he got to give us one or two answers. Yes, give into Caesar's tax, and then what would that would do? Well, that would then, they would then be able to use that in the church to say, you see, this man who claims to be the son of God is telling you not to give to the church but to give to Caesar. He's a false prophet. If he said, no, give him to Caesar, forget about giving to the church, then the same, the same aspect will occur. On other, other words, if he told them to give to the church and not to Caesar as well too, that they could go to the Roman Empire and they could go to the government and say, look, this man is telling people to lawfully break your rules. And if they break, for that reason alone, you should punish him and you should persecute him. They thought they had him in a trap. And what Jesus tells them is that, I see what you're trying to do. And I see you're trying to trap me. But why don't you do this? Why don't you take out whatever you have to give towards the tax? What do they do? They pull out a coin that's called denarius. And on that coin is Caesar's face. His image is on the coin. It's kind of the way our money now, if you look at it, it has dead presidents on it. This all started from that same tradition. That's why our money has Roman, Roman letters and writings on it, because we derive everything from the earliest of empires. So in this early coin, Caesar's image is on it. And what God says, he looks at the coin, he looks at Caesar's image, and he says, simple, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and give unto God which is God's. Why does he say this? A lot of people tend to use this verse and try to tie it to tithing and offering. That's not Jesus' heart at all. You see, Jesus came to be the heart of the law. So his purpose on earth was to show everybody what God's true purpose was when he gave us the laws and what he really means to want to be with us. So he says, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, give unto God which is God's. What he meant was give unto Caesar that which holds Caesar's image and give unto God that which holds God's image. What's the only thing that holds God's image? You. You see, what Jesus was trying to tell them was that it doesn't, really, doesn't necessarily matter. This is minute to my purpose of being here on this earth. So I would just rather tell you this, that it doesn't matter how much you're giving to the temple. It doesn't matter how much generosity you have. If God doesn't have your all, then it's pointless. This verse is not about tidying and offering. It's about surrender. And what he was trying to say was that give Caesar what he's asking for as long as you give God what he's really asking for, which is your heart. But now to jump back to Adam and Eve, they chose to accept the devil's lies and eat from the forbidden fruit because they wanted to be God, which caused them to sin, which caused God invertly after they sinned to cast them or drive them out of the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life and then live everlasting life in sin. Now, it's funny because that, that word drove out in Hebrew is called garash. And it's the same word that's used 48 times in the Bible. But one of the times that is used is in the same story that Moses is involved in. When God was driving the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, they use that same word, garage, that he drove them out. And those two pictures, while it's the same word, are totally different. We look, at the, at, we look at the Garden of Eden and God driving out Adam and Eve, and we see it as a punishment. 
because of them living in their life of sin. Now they can't live in forever happiness and, and perfection, and they have to go on and move into the world and, and continue to work and deal with labor pains and deal with sin elsewhere. So we look at it as punishment, God driving them out. But then we look at the story of, of the children of Israel being driven out of Egypt into, the, into their promised land or the wilderness, and we see that as liberation. We see that as a good time. So you wonder why, why the same word is used for both, one for punishment and one for liberation. And really it's because the heart behind it is the same. The actions, the way it looks and perceived to us is not the same, but God's heart behind it is the same. See, God didn't drive out Adam and Eve because he just wanted to punish them and give them a time out. But no, out of love and compassion for them so they cannot live their life in perpetual sin forever. He drove them out and redeemed them and saved them from another mistake that they can make. The same way as he loved and had compassion on the children of Israel for them living in captivity for so many years. He drove them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. What that to say is that when God drives you out of something, it's not because of a punishment or because of a freedom. But it's out of love and compassion for who you are and who you are to him. So sometimes you feel like, sometimes you may feel like the situation is happening in your life and it's like God's pulling you somewhere else. Don't look at it as a punishment. Don't look at it as any freedom, but look at it as God having compassion over your life and wanting to love you in a way that only he knows he can. So he'll push you out of wherever you're at before and bring you into something new. But why, why, why don't I have him brought up Adam and Eve? Why did I even talk about that? We're speaking about Moses. Well, in Romans chapter 5, verse 13 to 14, and verses 18 to 20, and it's up there for you guys. It says, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin does not change against anyone's account. Sin does not charge against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification for the life of all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so as through the disobedience, so as through the obedience of the one man they, that many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespasses might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So what am I trying to say? Well, what's a good way to give God back the glory that's before you? to solely receive the grace that's in front of you. It's to understand that God, when he, when he created this earth and he created you, it was with one purpose, to live with you forever and to be with you. And in doing that, Adam and Eve messed up, right? They chose to not be with God, but to be God themselves. So God drives them out of the Garden of Eden, and from that point forward, he makes it his sole purpose to find a way to get back to you. You see, if you need help trying to understand this Bible, always read it from the lens of that. The journey of God trying to get back to you. Because that's exactly what it is. But when the law came, the first time, as I mentioned, earlier in Exodus, when, when they finally got out of Egypt and they got into the wilderness, and God gave them the first set of the Ten Commandments, and gave them the laws, and gave them the rules, and gave them... The, the instructions on how to build a tabernacle so that he could dwell with them. At that same moment, the children of Israel were already on the bottom of the mountain asking Aaron to build them a calf because they didn't know Moses was coming back after 40 days. And they needed a God to worship to thank for getting them out of Egypt. So they asked, so Aaron took all their jewelry, took all their gold, took all their silver, and made a calf for them and said, Here's your God, the God of Israel that drove you out of Egypt. Go ahead and worship him. And while they're getting the rules to be able to connect to God himself, the almighty God, at the same moment they're getting those instructions, they're already breaking and choosing to connect to someone else. Why? Because they, they couldn't be like God. They couldn't be with God. They had to be their own gods. They had to find ways to give themselves the glory and not give it to him. So what happens? Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees all this going on, 
And as anybody else who will be angry and mad, he takes the tablets and he breaks them right at their feet. Then God appoints him to be able to cry out to the children, of, to, the, to the Levites, and to cry out to them and to tell the men and the, to go ahead and grab their swords and kill 3,000 people out of punishment for what occurred. They go ahead and they do that. Moses then builds a tent of meeting, and he meets God there at that tent. And the glory of God, it says, dwells in the tent. So that when people see it, they come to the tent to see God dwell there. And when God dwells there, they leave back to their, they leave back to their other tents outside. And God, and God and Moses meet face to face, it says. Now, face to face is not the same face to face as we're going to mention later on. Remember, the verses said, but God said no one could ever see his face. Well, when the Bible says face to face, what it means is that they spoke as friends, straightforward with each other. You know, you ever heard the saying, give something to me at face value? It means like right there, like whatever it is, it's plain as day, give it to me straight. That's the way God and Moses spoke. They spoke straight to each other. So when they says they met face to face, it meant that they had a communication together that was as friends could talk as real and as honest and as blunt to each other. The reason why we know this is because before they get the second, before they get the second set of the Ten Commandments, God's ready to get rid of all of Israel, not no longer be with them, no longer choose them as His chosen people. He's ready to wipe the earth clean with them. But earlier in Exodus chapter in Exodus chapter thirty-one, Moses starts pleading to God, saying, "Please, if you take these children and you choose to neglect them and leave them here in the wilderness, then what you are doing is making yourself." seem obsolete because your word and your promises said that you will be with them and you will make a great nation from them. So if you choose to just let them go and leave them here, then what you're doing is making yourself a liar, God. And, do, and you're not a man to lie. God realizes this and he says he repents from his ways and he turn, changes his mind and listens to Moses. As you can see, Moses and God had a relationship that was so strong. That's why they say Moses is the typology of Jesus himself. Because as Moses stood in the gap for the children of Israel, Jesus stood in the gap for each and every one of us the same way and said, don't make your words a liar. You said these people were your own. That's why I'm here. So how do we experience that glory that's before us? Or how do we give that glory back to God? It's by embracing the grace that is his son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he did on the cross. Because every single day, he stands as your mediator to say, these people, they're your own. They're your chosen. And don't discard them. Because then you'll be a liar, God. And, you won't, and your glory will cease to exist. So think about it. That's how, that's how God operates with his glory over our lives or before us. But that's not the only way he operates. What's another way we experience God's glory? Well, it's his glory that's beside you. So we spoke about his glory before you, and now we're speaking about his glory that's beside you. As we read in Exodus 33, chapters 20 to 23, God once says to Moses again, You cannot see my face, for no one has seen me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. My face must not be seen. Now, why couldn't Moses see God's face? Well, first, he wasn't redeemed at this time. You see, we all still lived in sin. Jesus Christ had not come and died for our sins. We were not perfect. We have not been perfected. And we are sinful. Our flesh nature does not allow us to be able to reach the Almighty God in the way, in the way that, we, that he intended us to. You see, if Adam and Eve did not commit the sin they did, it says that God used to walk in the cool of the day with them. They used to stand side by side with God everywhere they went. They had that connection with him. Why? Because sin was not an issue. Where sin dwells, God cannot dwell, or where it says. So now with Moses, what he asks us for, he says, Show me your glory, God. It's funny because when Moses first met God the first time, he didn't want to bear look at him. The Bible says in Exodus 3, chapter 6, is that when he first met God in the burning bush, when God first called him, it says that he hid his face from him because he could not bear to see him. Now, if you read in the ancient times, or at least in the Asiatic times, what that really was was a sign of, of humbling. 
or reverence to the person. No one looked at anybody in leadership or in power to their face. You always walked up to people and you always had your head down as a sign of reverence to who they are. But our Bible tells us that Moses did it out of fear, out of, out of, out of not feeling good enough or worthy enough to be in the presence of God. Now it's totally different. 30, 30 chapters later, Moses and God are on the same page, the two peas in a pod, and he's like, I want to see your glory, God. I've known you. You've helped lift me out of Egypt. You have helped save these people, and I want to I get to know the full you. But God still doesn't allow it. And he actually says, come to this rock that's near me, and when I pass by, I will cover you, lest you will die. And when my glory passes, you can see my back. Once again, it's just God saying that, no, you cannot see my face because you are not at the same level to me. Imagine if I was seeing your face right now, Esther. Looking at your face, we're eye to eye. I'm in the same place as you. There's no difference. I'm not behind you. I'm not beside you. I'm right in front of you, face to face. Both metaphorically and figuratively, I am standing at the same level as you. It's the same thing. We can't be at the same level as God, and God knows that. So God says, no, you cannot see my face because you can never stand in front of me face to face in the condition that you're at. So I shall cover you and that my glory will pass by you and you will see my back. Proverbs 25.2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Now what this verse means well, it means that God's glory is usually operated in the mysteries of God. As for man, we find glory in solving problems. Every, everyone does it every single day. When you go to work and you're given a task to do, and you actually complete that task, and you do it faster than anyone else, or you do it better than anybody else, then you choose to want to receive some sort of recognition. You hope your manager might say, good job, here's a raise next year, or good job, here's another task, or here's a promotion to a different title. That's receiving glory, because we receive glory by searching out solutions, solving problems, finding things that we need. God doesn't operate in that way. God knows all things. He has all solutions, has all powers. So his glory is received in the mysteries. And the stuff that we can't find, the stuff that we can't solve, that's where God's glory is shown, in the mysteries of who he is. It's that juxtaposition between man and God that we can understand the struggle we will have with obeying and living by the law. As I said, the people of Israel, when they received the law, they were already praising another God. They were already serving another God. So by the time they actually received the second the second copy of the Ten Commandments, and they received the, the rules on how to be able to build a temple. At this time, they already know that they're in, they're in bad place with God. They already know that they messed up. They already know they're in the doghouse. So what they do is they tend to take this law and say, I need these laws and I need these rules so that I could be able to get close to God. God is angry with me. God is mad at me. And the only way I can get close to him is if I follow these rules and obey these rules and, and live by these laws and build this temple and do everything perfect. Because if I do everything perfect, then God, then I could be next to God. You see, it's the children of Israel's heart that they say, no, I have to obey these laws so I could be next to him. But that wasn't the intention of God's laws. Remember, God's, the whole book of the Bible is God's journey back to you. So his intention was not for you to obey any laws so that you could be next to him. No, he gave you these laws and he gave you these rules and he gave you these commandments so that he could find a place to be with you. You see, God says that after he created the laws, after he created and after he told him how to build a temple, he said that, and once you do all these things, then I'll be able to dwell with you. Not that you'll be able to come to me, but that I will come to you. God had to do all these rules and had to make all these laws because he needed a way for the people to be ready in a position to be able to receive him, but not so that you could be able to get to him, but that he could come to you. So the reason why we struggle with, with following the laws, because a lot of times we look at the laws just that set of rules on how we could obey God so that we could get to God. We do it now to this day. We have Jesus Christ who's our Lord and Savior, who's redeeming for our sins, but every single day people wake up with a certain guilt that if they do something wrong, then they're not getting close to God. And that they're not going to be next to God. And that if you mess up in this little area of your life or you keep on doing this thing, then for some reason that's going to separate you from God. 
When our Bible tells us that's not the case, Jesus Christ died for our sins and paid the price already for us to be with him forever. In other words, I'm not giving you a free token to continue sinning. But what I am trying to tell you is that it's not about what you could do to get to him. It's about what he did to get to you. His whole attention of the law was for him to reach you. We call that the heart of the law. Nowadays, if you're studying American history, it's still done the same way. We have a Supreme Court. Our Supreme Court, their job is to read the letter of the law and then try to interpret the heart of it. Because we know this was written about 200 years ago in different English with different principles. And we were just 13 colonies joining together to try to build this place we call the United States. So it's so hard to read it letter for letter and just try to understand what they were trying to say. No, it was meant to last the test of time. So our Supreme Court's job is to read the letter of the law and interpret the heart of it. Well, God gave the children of Israel the letter of the law back then with Moses. And from, there, from Moses all the way to Jesus Christ came, what they did was try to interpret that letter of the law the best way they could and read it as a set of rules to be able to follow. But God knew that that wasn't going to work because why? They kept on sinning. They kept on falling short every single day. They didn't have it in them to be able to, to, to complete or fulfill these laws. Why? Because they were too busy trying to get to God and realizing that, not realizing that God was just trying to get to them. So what God does, he realized that he has to send his son, Jesus Christ, to, uh, to us to be beside us and be with us, to be able to live out the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we couldn't die and to be able to give us a chance to have eternal salvation with him together. You see, that's why we call Jesus the heart of the law because when Jesus came, he said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to give the purpose to it that you guys didn't find. I came to answer the questions that you guys had about this. I came to be the completion of what was given to you a long time ago. So we know that in hindsight, that the glory that was concealed or kept hidden was Jesus Christ himself. We know that because John chapter 1, verse 14 and 17, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You don't believe that? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. So how do, we award, how do we award to God the glory that's beside us? Is by embracing the perfect love through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's not enough to believe in the glory that's before you. To look at this world and say, yes, I can see God in the trees. I can see God in the skies. I see him in the birds. I see him in the bees. I see him in everything that's happened. I see him in my children. I see him in my family. And I can see God before me and his glory. But... For us to truly live in this purpose, in this new covenant with God, we have to recognize the glory that was beside us. And that's, that is Jesus Christ himself and what he did to pay the price. But not only did it stay beside us, because this brings me to my last point. The next way to experience God is through his glory that's within you. And I'm getting ready to close up real quick. But if you continue to read Exodus 34 and you read to verse 29, you'll see that when Moses finished receiving the second set of the Ten Commandments and the laws and the rules to be able to build the tabernacle, it says that he came down from Mount Sinai and he had this glow to him. It was God's glory that was shining upon him to the people to the point that he had to wear a veil. Because it was too blinding for the people that were there at the bottom of the mountain. And it said that every single time after that, when God met with Moses, that same glory would shine upon him and he would wear a veil until the glory faded. And when the glory faded, he would then lift off the veil and continue on his day. 
You see, the reason why that glory faded is because it was just upon him. But us, church, we live with a glory that's within us. It's not a glory that fades, not a glory that comes and goes. It's not a light that's just there at the brightest moments and then dims out. No, but we have a light that shines with us for eternity. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he said that he'll send us his comforter, the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to be able to shine a glory of God that cannot be faded, that cannot dim, that cannot be wiped away, but that can live the test of time and breach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. That Holy Spirit that lives within you does not fade. It grows brighter and brighter the more you seek it. And the more you allow it to work in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4-6. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. The God of this age, it means just this age, the culture. That's an easier way for you to put it. They cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as a servant for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So how do we give that glory that's within us back to him? It's by allowing it to shine in our hearts and onto this world. You see, when I received this message two years ago, I posted something on Facebook. So if you guys don't believe that this message came two years ago, you could scroll through my Facebook. I don't post a lot. And go to December 31st, 2020. Because I wrote a post for that year, for New Year's. I'm just going to read it to you guys real quick. So what I wrote at that time was, I have learned that through highs and lows, to God still be the glory. So for 2020... 2021 and beyond, glory unto the almighty God, the one who never lost a battle, the one who has never forsaked you, the one who was bruised, ridiculed, mocked, and slain for you, the one who became poor so that we might become rich, the one who bore the scars of our sins so that we wouldn't have to carry them alone. Yes, that God, that Jesus, this year is his and so will be every year to come. Happy New Year's, everyone, and God bless you. And that was my simple post. And when I wrote it, I honestly didn't think much of it other than a nice word that God gave me and an affirmation that I would give that glory back to him. Little did I know that two days later, my wife's home that she grew up in for her whole life would burn down in a fire and would displace her parents, her siblings, and everyone she loved. And walking into that house again after the fire finished and the, and the fire department finished putting out the flames and all the destruction that was there, I walked through the mud, the debris, charcoal, and I said, to God be the glory. Because I knew that two days ago I just made him this promise that I would give him the glory forevermore. It was that new to me that I knew I was going to I was gonna have to live it right then and there. And I said, to God be the glory. Only to find out then that my second child that was being born, Liam, was going to be born with a urea cycle disorder that was going to affect his health to the point that was going to cause him to have a transplant at 10 months old in April 2021. I mean, April 2022. But throughout those 10 months of his first life, we were in the hospital for two weeks at a time. I probably spent over 200 days in the hospital that year, either me and my wife taking care of our son, living separated from our other son, having our parents take care of the other one whenever we weren't around. And just going through the trials and tribulations, seeing them poke and prod him, trying to find a cure for his condition or trying to help him get better. I just couldn't help but sit by his bed and say, to God be the glory. 
see, I saw the glory before him. I saw, I saw the glory that was before me from God in my life all the way. But this was the first time I was actually living, experiencing his glory that was beside me in the hospital room where I couldn't step foot into the church because I needed to be with my child. I had no other choice but to build a temple at his bedside because I couldn't be in this temple every single day. And I could have just chose to give up and, and forget about it, but no, I chose to say, you know what, God? I told you you'll get the glory in 2021 and 2022 and forevermore, and that, that's not going to change, God. I'm going to give you the glory now like I told you I'll give you the glory last year. And it doesn't end there because then April 10th, 2022, my son receives the call to be able to get a transplant for his new liver to help cure him from his condition. Only at the price that someone else loses their child so that he could be able to receive a liver. So while I'm rejoicing and embracing the fact that my son's going to have a new life, a new ticket or a new chance of life, I'm knowing that there's another set of parents who are crying and mourning for the death of their own. And I don't know how you process that. I don't know what you do in that moment. If you cry out of happiness or you cry out of, joy, or you cry out of pain and sorrow. But I did know that at that moment I had to say to God, be the glory. Because whatever he had planned to do was bigger than me, bigger than my child, and bigger than anybody else. I knew his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. And his purpose is greater than mine. So I had to accept it and say to God, be the glory. And now we forward to this day where I have both of my kids in this building. I have my wife, and I'm here again on this altar. Making a promise to God along that journey, saying that if my family cannot walk in this household in full, I will never step foot in this place again. Well, God made a way. My family's here. My son's doing better day by day. I'm able to restore relationships with my other child. I'm able to raise him and continue to see him grow, see him get to kindergarten. I'm going to see my, my two-year-old grow into kindergarten. I'm going to see him on his first graduation, his second graduation, his third graduation. And I promise you right now that going forward for the day I die, to God be the glory in all of it. See, I don't know, church, if you believe in a God that deserves the glory, then you go and give him the glory because he deserved the glory back then. He deserved it now and he'll deserve it forevermore. No matter what comes, God's getting the glory, church. And everything I do, God will get the glory. To the day I stop breathing, God will get the glory because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it all. None of us is. He deserves all glory, all honor, all praise, all dominion, all power belongs to God in heaven. Please stay standing, church. Please stay standing. We're going to end right here. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 says, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who have, who have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the one and true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What am I saying, church, is that it's not enough to just know that God deserves the glory in knowledge or in wisdom got to apply it. So I don't know who, I don't know which one of you here may, may have realized that I haven't really done a good job applying what I do know. I really haven't given God the glory that he truly deserves in my life. I mean, I recognized him, but I haven't really lived a life as if that glory shines before me, besides me, and within me every single day. So I want to extend the opportunity right now for those who do know Christ and have been saved. If you feel like 
you're in a place where you need to just give God his glory. I call upon you to do it. You could do it now. You could do it tomorrow. You could do it the next day. But please give it to him. He's worthy of it. And for those of you who don't know this God and don't know this Jesus, I had never chosen to give him a chance. I want you to know he's here beside you. And he just wants a chance to be within you. He came here before you today. He's standing beside you today, and he wants to be within you. So for those of you who don't know Christ right now, don't rush. Don't, I mean, don't take too long. Don't wait. On the count of three, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand and say, I want to accept that glory. I want to receive that glory within me, and I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior from this day forward. So one, two, three, anybody who needs that, please raise your hands. Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Come on, church. Someone's making a decision today. Someone's choosing to give God the glory in their life right now. Let's pray. Everyone bow your heads at this moment. God, Father, friend, I come before you right now to give you the glory, to give you the honor and give you the praise that you are so deserving of. Knowing what you did in my life, I can never repay. What you did for my child, I can never repay. What you've done in my household, I can never repay, God. But the least I can do is give it back to you where recognition is earned and well-deserved. So God, I come before you right now, God, pouring out my heart. I ask you to be within me. I, ask, I accept the sacrifice your son Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. I accept the forgiveness that comes with that sacrifice. I believe that on the third day you bodily rose from the grave and redeemed me from any punishment or any wage of debt that's over my life. I accept full forgiveness and I accept full love at this time. I ask you to be within me and to allow me to live my life forevermore. Appreciating that glory that is yours and yours alone. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen.